Is this for credits? The NZATE podcast. We're sitting here staring at each other without any words coming out, which I think probably nicely characterizes this moment in the year, would you say? Yeah, it t- totally. We're coming out the other end of one of those old fashioned ringers, yes. you know, which I feel we've been rolling around in. I think we got stuck in it. You know how those ringers work? Sometimes the yes. clothing gets stuck in the ringer and it just goes around and around. Yeah, yeah. And then the yeah. fabric, like, kind of, it, it might be some kind of fine knit. It might have once been a fine, loose knit. Yeah. And now it's... Shredded. But somehow now it's ending like in a pile of spaghetti somewhere. Yep. Yeah, hey, we've yeah. got a really nice podcast, though. I mean, talk about choosing a funny time of the year to resume all of this, but this is about streaming, and I think that conversation went in really interesting directions. Yeah, it did. And we, I mean, streaming has been a bit of a hot topic. It's been, it was picked up by media ahead of the PPTA annual conference, which generally happens, you know, like when things move to national conference, you know that we're coming up to the next uh, round of bargaining with um, the minister. We're coming up to an election year. Education is going to be a political football. We've got the curriculum rewrite, the RAS, the new common practice model for literacy. We've got the literacy wars at the primary level. There is so much happening in the education space. And one of the things that the media happened to pick up on is um, is the importance of the discussion around streaming. Um, so we were lucky to get the um, JVP, the junior vice president, Chris Abercrombie, to um, have a yarn with us about the implications of that and the PPTA stance on that. So a really important movement. And, um, yeah, I think we're lucky to get some airtime with them. I like how now that the media want to talk about things, they turn to you, Philly. And I'm going to put the link to the stuff oh, yeah. interview with you so that our listeners can watch you speak. And I thought I might put a link to that documentary about my response to streaming in the UK as well, because yeah, cool. then people can look into some of the things we've been doing as we both embrace um, non-streamed environments and have done so for some time, I guess. Yeah. I would also encourage listeners to scroll to the photograph at the bottom of the stuff, uh, stuff article where they, where I'm really angry. The man came to my house and I was like, it's like, what do you want? Like, what do you, so we'll take some photos. And as soon as anyone says to me, you're going to take a photo, I don't know what to do with my face. It just becomes, even my husband will take a photo and say, <laughs> what are you doing with your face? You look so weird. But um, I was like, am I, like, disappointed with, like, the status quo? Am I, like, anti-establishment or am I hopeful for mm. the future? And he's like, all of these things. And it's turned out in a... <laughs> so it's like, in a, turned out to be all those weird, things. It's just weird. Um, Although, to be fair, yeah. I mean, we, we have these conversations regularly and you always put me to shame. You always look fantastic oh, on, at look, online conference. So I, stop I think, it. Stop it. Yeah, Don't. No. Don't thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that, but I don't know what to do with the compliment. So, if we can right. just we'll end <laughs> we'll, that conversation we'll end. there and move on to the very important conversation around streaming. I hope everybody enjoys it. Open your ears up. Yeah, and we'll the see you end. in a couple of weeks. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Matiwa. A paper was written by. Um, a, a member of the head office of the PPTA, and that paper was uh, particularly about the experience of Māori and Pacific young people in streamed classes where they're disproportionately represented in those low-band class. And there's lots of 
different language around low band or low set or whatever. Um, and so, so yeah, so some re- research was obviously referenced, a really high-quality paper that was taken um, to conference and before that different regions and, and schools would have agreed that they supported that paper. So the paper arrives at conference. It's a, it's a big room filled with representatives from all over the country. Um, a, a region will present that paper. It will be debated and then there'll be a vote. And it was just, I, I think it was unanimous, but Chris can confirm that, um, that across the, the motu, across the country, regions and branches want to see streaming abolished by 2030. So what that means now is that in the next round of bargaining, where Melanie Weber, the president of the PPTA, will be working directly with Chris Hipkins about improving working conditions, et cetera, um, for teachers, something that will be on the table is the um, is abolishing streaming. And that's something that Chris Hipkins has actually spoken about way before conference anyway, about how it's essentially a, a discriminatory um, system and, and, and one that's very entrenched. And so we've got time now, I guess. We've got, what, seven years to, to look at cr- changing the culture of, of streaming so that it's it's more equitable. I think we're going to need really strong pedagogical leadership um, to support teachers moving away from a practice where they feel as though they have capacity best when there is sameness in front of them, if that makes sense. Yes. I mean, it's a, any kind of change requires relearning the work, doesn't it? And there's all other forms of changes happening. I was thinking about the kind of date by which something should happen phenomenon in New Zealand. We've sort of done it with a few things. We've done it with uh, smoking, it's mm. now being mm. grandfathered out, isn't it, where the um, legal age for smoking is increasing by a year every year so that there are people being born who will never be able to legally smoke. And then there's predator-free New Zealand. So you could actually do the streaming thing that way. You could kind of um, abolish it uh, gradually so that the older teachers who don't want to change can just kind of retire out of it. <laughs> but the <laughs> yeah, well, I guess that will be happening to a point, right? Like yeah, those yeah. teachers who are sort of cuspy. But it is enough time. And I think it's important that teachers feel safe and empowered and confident about this change and that it is not just another thing that is going to be happening to them, but a really important move in education that will support young people all feeling as though they have access to achievement. And I think that's the the thing that I've experienced the most in my teaching practice where I've taught those lower band classes. And it kind of I ended up sort of specializing in it, I guess, in in, in one school that was the majority of my teaching program, working with young people who were doing a second year of level two as opposed to a level three program. And that's because there were prereqs to get into the level three course. Um, and those students didn't meet that prereqs. And then there was, so I had two of those classes. And then a third class I had was like a more unit standards based course. But so for three out of four of my classes, I was working with those amazing people. And it took, it took all year long to, for those people to feel, um, yeah, safe, safe learning. Yeah, there's so much to delve into here, isn't there? I, I guess we should establish what it what it is 
as a thing and where it's coming from. So streaming is the process of placing students into classes based on prior attainment, isn't it? And differentiating one class from another based on those prior attainment measures. And it can be done on all sorts of different data, but generally it's based on this preconceived idea about students' ability. And they often used to use the phrase ability grouping, which is a, I think, educationally unsound elision with the notion of prior attainment. Like prior attainment is the measure that they use to differentiate the classes, but then they then they turn that into a notion of ability. And I think that's where some of the real damage comes in that you're discussing in terms of the student's self-perception as learners. Because if you're placed into a class that's defined by words like low ability or bottom, then I mean, they basically believe whatever we tell them about themselves as learners. And so we're basically telling them right from the beginning that they're uh, not going to succeed in education. And, and, and it's quite hard to then work against that. And another aspect of this that I've seen over the years in my experience where uh, schools have attempted some form of streaming is that it, it doesn't even stay at purely based on prior uh, achievement because quite often it, it becomes a kind of a behavioural grouping. And, and so, yes, we've got this really strong, uh, high-achieving class and we've got this candidate here who's got quite good results but, you know, they're quite disruptive and they might interfere with the culture of that high-attaining class so we'll put them in the one down from that. You know, like I've seen a lot of those kind of uh, massages happen as well. The whole thing totally. seems anti-education. I think yeah. the other thing is it's coming from the PPTA and it's about uh, educational practice based on educational research. And so just before this podcast, I did a bit of a quick review of the kind of aggregator sites for educational research, like the Education Endowment Foundation and New Zealand's Education Hub, and looked at their reports on streaming. And they, you know, they, they speak in chorus about the fact that there's no evidence to support any notion that students achieve better with streaming. And there's a lot of evidence of harm to the lower achievers and sort of social emotional harm as a result of the practice. So it's not like we're talking ideology here. And I think that's something that in New Zealand we've done a bit too much of, a kind of ideologically driven educational change which doesn't have any evidence to support it or isn't even investigated to see if it's effective, whereas this one is one where there's a, an abundance of evidence. And it's really just about aligning our education system with uh, educational evidence so that we're operating in a way that conforms with best practice. And I can't see the difficulty in that. Yeah. And I think it's, there's an important distinction to make as well between um, responsive curriculum and course design and streaming. Um, and the, I think yeah. there probably is a little bit of gray area in between those two things that needs to be interrogated. And it's important that it is. But at my school, for example, there is a, um, a year 11 class and it's focused on core numeracy. So it's for students, um, many of whom have identified learning needs like dyscalculia and for those students to be uh, in a, in a in, again, because we're not, we're not streamed, so for them to just be in an ordinary math class would prevent them from accessing achievement. So it's a it's a much smaller class. The decision to be in that class has been made with that student and with Fano, 
and with tutor teachers and with heads of department. And it's a it's a, a class where students feel empowered to be able to go into it because they're getting the support that they need. And they understand, you know, those students may have educational priorities outside of that subject. So it's not something that is disempowering that is happening to them. That's the interesting thing, isn't it? I think one of the ways to kind of frame that more globally is Streaming in in a lot of cases, while it's been claimed to have been done for the benefit of students, is largely done, I think, for the benefit of the institution and the teachers. What you're describing there is a program that's designed for the benefit of students, which, and I think one of the probably the crucial delineating features is choice. Mm. Like streaming is not something that students get a choice over. So they don't get to elect to go into a particular course because it's going to support their learning in an area that they define as important or that is, is they've agreed is important. Instead, it's a, it's like you've been placed in this class because this is what we've decided you're capable of. And that kind of external uh, decision making about them as learners is where the harm comes in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't suspect that the PPTA is trying to ban specialist courses that are designed to meet particular needs for groups of students who uh, identify within themselves that those needs exist. In fact, I'm hoping that that's where things will go as a result of this kind of change. Speaking for ourselves, like you you teach in a school that's very clearly a non-streamed environment. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's meant that, I mean, if we're coming up with new ideas for courses um, and we have the freedom to be able to do that, so there's a certain kind of point at the year where you might kind of brainstorm ideas for different courses and could we smush these two different subjects together or what if we offered a different combination of standards, what could we call that? Um, It's something I think in, in, in my department I'd like to get better at doing. I think for the last couple of years we've just been very responsive and kind of coping with what we have in front of us. So I haven't had quite the creativity, the creative vision that I might have had um, previous to COVID. Uh, but I know that we've talked about certain courses. We've talked about like an English literature course. We've talked about the need for some learners to really develop develop their skills and literacy, but a massive piece of that conversation is always, A, is it going to be perceived as being streaming? And are we actually just using language as a, as a euphemism for streaming under the assumption that it's easier for us to cater to a group of students who all have sameness, you know, the same kind of needs in front of us? Um, and, and, and generally, well, in all of those instances where we've thrown ideas for courses around, we've sort of got to the point where we're like, this is streaming. What we're wanting to do is to remove those students there and to remove those students there and essentially have a mainstream English course and other courses that sit on either end of that. Um, and that's that's wrong. And so even, even though I'm anti-streaming, it's streaming, and even though I've had um, – like significant experience, I think, teaching particularly the lower band classes, it's still this kind of like default because of our own kind of um, institutionalization that you think it's something that might make things easier for students or make things easier for yourself or provide more access to achievement. So I don't know, I guess I'm just saying that because it's even if you believe in something, it doesn't mean necessarily that you easily default to that, that you have this own kind of process of, of critique and evaluation that allows you to, to end up at the at the right place. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that cultural shift that needs to happen, right? Is that we have to 
to all be interrogating our own practice um, and our own biases. Absolutely. And actually, as part of that, I've got a long history of using a particular approach, which I'd really like to explain to you to sort of challenge the whole concept of class streaming and teacher setting and all that sort of thing. And having kind of implemented it across a number of different schools over the years, I've kind of got to, got to grips with the kind of political process that you have to follow when you're invested in making that change because there's quite a few people that have to come with you if you're going to change from a highly streamed and setted environment to something that's not in order to continue to have people's confidence. And so the groups that are interested in that are the senior leadership of the school because they're interested in the structure that sits around it and the performance of students and their uh, outcomes in the end and also teacher well-being. Then you've got your parent body who, who have very strong opinions on this and then you've got the students and then you've got the teachers themselves. And each of those groups have a slightly different set of priorities and each of them kind of respond to changes away from setting quite differently. Interestingly, I've found that when you're working with the parent body, so we would make these changes in a consultative way and have these town hall meetings with parents where they would come in and we'd discuss the principles of education, their concerns and the kind of issues. A, a lot of parents will come into that meeting with a very strong view that settings should be retained, largely because most of them have in mind that their student is going to have a chance at least of being placed in a high achieving class and the sense that that high achieving class has a kind of a halo surrounding it and will be kind of resourced and supported to thrive in the education and they want that opportunity for their kids. When you start to kind of reframe it and say, well, out of all the people in this room, if you're a representative group of parents, then 15% of you will have children who are in the top class and 15% of you will have children in the bottom class and that's mm. 15 of you if there's 100 of you so 15 of you if you're agreeing for setting are agreeing to consigning your child to a class that's defined as the bottom one and are you thinking in those terms are you thinking about what that might be like for your child if we create a system that has that possibility and quite often when they start thinking in those terms they they, they change their position surprisingly quickly they start thinking in terms of what it might be like to be in that system rather than the kind of idealized vision of the system which is often presented to them so that's an mm. interesting thing and I also find with teachers um, like for example I'm at the moment working with some teachers who are very new to the profession in my department and one of the things they've come in to our diverse classrooms to discover is that they don't have the skills that they need to cater for that full range of learner. Like they don't know how to run a lesson so that the highest achievers are stimulated as much as they possibly can. And the students who needing specific support are getting that support all while also managing the kind of norms of, of working in a classroom. And so you're absolutely right. If you're going to make this change, you have to build the expertise first, don't you? You have mm. to have, you have to have, uh, the practices in place before you start saying, well, let's just eliminate the system that we have at the moment. Yeah. And it means that I think like that the lessons that I'm used to teaching are between 90 and a hundred minutes long. And in that time, you, you kind of, you can't have the sort of transactional practice or instructional practice where you're up the front and everyone might do an activity for 10 minutes and then you bring it back in and everyone does the same kind of thing, like a, like a worksheet style um, practice. Like it just doesn't, work within that time frame um so so uh, 
personally, I think if, if we're going to be ready for this change in 2030 and get ahead of that change, then our practice around universal design for learning needs to improve massively. And there's a key distinction to make between universal design for learning and differentiation, because I think differentiation in particular will be the language that is um, that is now um, falling out of this conversation around streaming. So universal design for learning is designing learning with the assumption that you're going to have a, a very, very diverse range of learners in front of you. So you're you're operating under the assumption that there is there are going to be students who need the font to be a particular size and colour, that the um, contrast between the slides needs to be considered. I'm talking about kind of digital practice here with a, with, with a slideshow. Um, you'll be breaking your task down so that it's really well scaffolded. You might have like different exit points through that lesson so that students can self-direct and be agentic. So there's, a, there's work that needs to go into understanding how to design your learning in a way that is universal. And that's different to differentiation, which happens after some kind of assessment has taken place. And that assessment might be formative. It might be in discussion. It might be using observational, qualitative or quantitative data. But you change your planning to respond to the identified needs of your learners. So that's differentiation. Universal design for learning is operating under the assumption that people are going to be accessing this so differently. And if you think of like the design world and think of apps that we use and the one that we're using now or, um, or Uber or um, whatever, you know, they're designed in such a way that anyone should be able to pick up their phone or open their screen and navigate through. So the, the UI the you know the the user interaction and the user experience there are there are people who are sitting behind that ensuring that doesn't matter who opens the screen doesn't matter who picks up the phone they know what to do with the information in front of them so they can get to an end point and that's how i think we need to be thinking about our learning design is what is it that students need to achieve by the end of this time frame and how can i guide them what is the journey that I'm taking them on so that everybody has access to that. And often the process that's involved in getting from students to point A to point B is not this transaction where you're constantly saying, well, you you know, you're teaching something and then it's spit back and you're constantly checking in because um, there's a certain, I guess, level of control that you have to kind of relinquish. So picking up on that control thing, like the, the practices that I've been working on developing over the years have a lot to do with shifting the mm. locus of control towards students whilst still maintaining our expertise and experience as teachers and, you know, operating within our domain. I kind of yeah. like to think of it in terms of that cliche of us staying in our lane and thinking about mm. us as people who design learning and that students make choices around things that we have no business being involved in, like, for example, style and uh, character and persona and content. And so the, um, so, so the, 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 the optimum scenarios that I try to achieve when, in the departments that I work in are situations where students decide which class they're in rather than us deciding for them. And we offer them a menu of course options. And those options have quite a lot of diversity to them so that even before they walk into a classroom at the beginning of the year, they've made choices about what they want that year to provide to them 
And obviously, and what experiences they'll have in that within English, and what yeah, kind what of flavor. style it'll have, and the kind of and and who will be teaching it, so that they've got the ability to navigate the relationships with their teachers as much as they have the content of the courses. And in doing that, I think it's a brilliant answer to some of the concerns that people have in relation to the uh, removal of streaming, because it still allows parents and and children. In fact, it, it finally allows parents and children to have some say in the aspects of learning that they are the most interested in and possibly also the most expert in, which is, you know, what environment is best for me to learn in. And we can take care of the stuff that we're best expert at, which is designing great learning experiences for the people who do decide to come through the door. Because let's face it, the, the average classroom teacher gets no choice about who comes through the door. They are not involved in that discussion and they just receive a timetable and then start working with that group of students. And I, I love that as a teacher. I enjoy the challenge of meeting my group at the beginning of the year and starting work at learning about them and working to meet their needs. But the joy of knowing when uh, when the students walk in the room that they have actually made some decisions that have got themselves to this place is wonderful. And then you see, if you just like you described with your numeracy group, if a student has some concerns about themselves, knows they have a particular need, can see that there's a program of learning available to support them to develop in that way, then they elect that course. So like you, I've probably been one of those people who tended towards the uh, lower band groups when I was in previously in streaming environments. And, And actually since then, I still often find myself to be the teacher that the students with additional learning needs or barriers to learning will choose because they understand that I have an approach that supports their learning and they want that. They want to be in that environment. It doesn't actually matter whether I'm teaching Shakespeare or a contemporary film at the time. They just like the fact that I have a particular approach that matches up with their way of working and they feel safe and successful in that situation. And because of that, they also, others who don't like my way of working, which is very dialectic, for example, can go to another teacher who's much more strongly resourced-based or whatever it is that they tend to veer towards in their practice. And that actually solves a whole lot of those problems that streaming was designed to solve, which is kind of meeting students' needs, at least in kind of group sense. And 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 I, I think that the, the power of it, of course, is that the students are empowered in the process as opposed to disempowered and they're able to make those choices but i'm just thinking of those kind of those major themes about corridor like the idea of students electing what they want to do that idea of choice and agency responsive curriculum design as a part of that as well so students are able to match their needs with what a course is offering the ability to have choice over a different types of programs even within that one subject like if there's different themes um, or or different approaches that might respond to teacher strengths um, and, and having yeah having those options there so there's a lot that goes into designing curriculum um, and, and universal design for learning and differentiation as well so there's a lot that goes into curriculum design for if we're going to be moving to this practice where there's no streaming in 2030. There is a lot, but we both work in quite different environments. Like I, I work in, a, in an independent school. You work in a senior state school. Yet both of us have got quite a lot of alignment in the fact that we know that the best practice in classroom 
uh, work is to avoid streaming. And we are joined by the fabulous Chris uh, Abercrombie from down in Invercargill. Um, I'll hand it over to you, Chris, to introduce yourself. Tell us a little about the mahi that you've been doing within the um, at conference. I want to hear about conference oh, yeah. and how that kind of streaming paper was received and I guess what happens now. Uh, so kia ora koutou, ko, uh, Chris Abercrombie, aho, and I am the Junior Vice President of the PPTA, and as uh, Philip has said, I live in Invercargill, teach at, uh, at James Hargis down here, been there for a few years now, and yeah, just got back from conference late last week, uh, PPTA Annual Conference, and it was awesome. It was so good to be able to do it face-to-face, the first time in three years, so that was awesome. And so tell us a little bit about the streaming paper. So that was read out. There was some discussion around that, and then a motion would have been passed. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us a bit about that process? Absolutely. So it sort of started uh, about a year ago, the whole process, maybe a bit longer. Um, I attended a meeting in Dine- uh, Christchurch uh, with a number of uh, all different organisations, an iwi-led uh, meeting to discuss the issue of streaming and how to start the de-streaming process. And it was at that point I found out PPDA didn't actually have a policy on streaming one way or the other. So I started initiating the, well, we need to have a policy, you know, what is it going to be? What do members think? And so we started that process. The Secondary Principles Council, which is the PPTA principles, have already said streaming caused harm. Um, and so we're working with what they had said. We're working with the iwi leaders group um, and just work, making our way through that process talking to members at many different events around the country to get their um, their thoughts on it. Uh, and, yeah, and then a paper was written, a great paper, written by uh, Kylie yeah, Hopapa. Fantastically yeah. written paper. And uh, it was debated. You know, there was lots of discussion. And it was really interesting because there was a lot of personal stories from members about how streaming impacted them personally as when they were at school. And impacted their children you know we had one one member talk about how his uh son wasn't allowed to do year 13 uh maths uh and he that was at his school it was his school he was teaching at and his child wasn't allowed to do year 13 maths they had to fight had to send him to another school uh and he's a geotech engineer now so you know we're, we're hearing those stories and you know we we know so many people you know you you talk to sort of people and they talk about particularly you know to be frank particularly maori people and they talk about how like when i started school i was in the bottom stream and then they did a test and they put me to the top stream and all that kind of stuff so that automatic assumption that they'd be in the bottom stream because they were maori you know and this isn't this isn't stuff from the 1950s you know this is this is people talking about their children who are currently in school you know, in the last 10 years. So it's just, yeah, it was really, really heartfelt and then lots of debate and then we voted. So PBDA decided, the members decided that uh, streaming isn't for us. It's, it's not right. It's racist. It's sexist. It's elitist. Uh, it doesn't have any educational um, support for it. You know, there's no research that says it works. Uh, and actually all the research says there's no benefit of it, really. And um and so, yeah, that's, that's, that's become the PBDA policy. And the next steps now is, well, how do we achieve this goal? How do we achieve this policy? And am I right in thinking as, um, am I right in thinking as well, Chris, that being that this has been passed at National Conference, this is now on the table for discussion between Chris Hipkins and Melanie Weber 
um, at the next round of, of bargaining? Is that is that what happens with this piece of information now? Not 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 necessarily bargaining, but all the time. Okay. So this is this is PBA right. policy now. So our policy is to abdicate for the de-streaming of Aotearoa New Zealand by 2030. So that, that's sure. talking to Chris Hipkins, that's talking to the ministry, that's talking to secondary principals, that's talking to primary principals, that's talking to anyone basically who wants to de-stream and 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 mm. support. That mahi. So we're looking at other options. You're looking at other things in the future. So hosting summits to discuss the streaming. You know, looking at PLD opportunities. All of those things are what we're going to be pushing for uh, in the future. So this opens up. So this is this is sort of a stance that people are agreeing on, and in agreeing to that stance, this now leads to a lot of mahi to support schools de-streaming, de-streaming. <laughs> Screaming might still, yeah, both are good. Might still be happening, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. Now that there's a stance that's been agreed upon, the mahi happens and people are on board. Absolutely. So before this point, we didn't have a policy, so we couldn't say yes or no either way about it. So this gives us a, a starting point, and that's really important. This is a starting point; it's not an end point. Uh, and for the PBDA to advocate for to, to fight for quality PLD, to fight for resourcing for schools, to allow this process to happen, to allow de-streaming to happen, and because you have to have those things with it, without um, good PLD, without the resourcing, it's it's not going to work, and we're just going to fall into old traps. But I think it's really important to note that a huge number of schools don't stream. For various reasons, I went to a small rural school. You had just had classes. There wasn't, you know, there was no timetable choice. It was this is the classes that you were doing, um, and so there was no point in streaming. There was one maths class, one science class. It was just the way it was, uh, and so there's a huge number of schools like that. And there's also a huge number of schools that have taken a stance not to stream. You know, it's a policy of that school. So we're not starting from nothing, but there is some work to be done. Can I ask a, a, a cheeky question, Chris? Mm-hmm. Um, the comments section of some of these articles, and even within you know chat on different teacher platforms, something that pops up is the first 15. Could you please explain to our listeners the difference between being in a first 15 rugby team and how that is quite separate to the argument for de-streaming mm, absolutely so number one first 15 is a choice <laughs> like you choose to go play rugby um you, you don't choose to go to school you know you're at school from the ages of five to 16 so you'd have no choice in that uh and the other thing i found this out the other day actually if you look at some of our top sports people their birthdays tend to be at the start of the year because it means they're bigger than the other kids by the end of the year and so it's like, well, is that streaming? You know, like we were just having this sort of conversation. It's this random quirk that, um, that uh, yeah. So the biggest one is, is it's, not, it's a choice. It's a choice to join the mm. first 15. And it's not a choice if you do social studies, English, maths, science. These aren't choices the kids make. They, they do them. Um, we have them from the ages of 5 to 16. I think there's another dimension to that argument, Chris. Um, the first 15 is a selected group of students or young people in a competitive environment where there's ultimately only one winner. And what we're going for in our education is not just for the top 15 to win, but actually for the whole lot of them. And so you have to use a different system if you want everyone winning. Um, yeah. We used to have a system 
being the old guy in the room, we used to have an education system that was about picking winners. I mean, we were essentially ranked nationally and then the top people were given the best opportunities. But our system has, thankfully, structurally changed since then. Everybody can succeed within our system, and um, but we've got to change our practices to match, don't we? Absolutely. And actually, someone, uh, one of the members at conference uh, spoke to me about this. She said, um, we don't know what the future holds. We have no idea what the future is. So we need to maximize the potential of every single one of our students because we're going to need them. We're going to need all of our students to be the best they can be for us to have a successful future. And I just, that really sat with me. I was like, well, that makes perfect sense. Like we can't at the, at a very young age, at a very young age for some of our students, just decide that you're dumb or that you're, you can't do maths or whatever that means. You know, like we just can't decide that. No, well, we can't decide it also because it's not even true, yeah. is it? Uh, like, <laughs> like we're, we're not we're not even being teachers if we think that people are fixed in their ability and yeah. that nothing can be done about that. I mean, if that were true, then why have an education system? Exactly, and 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 I think too, it's it's, it's not about. I think people seem to think it's like we're going to throw everyone into a big melting pot and survival of the fittest and, you know, whatever happens. Well, that's not what's going to happen. It's about understanding that students are individuals. It's about meeting their individual needs and helping them meet their goals and whatever that means for them. Uh, I've, I've got a good teacher friend and uh, and they, have, they teach geography and they don't have any prerequisites at any level. They'll take anyone. And he said to me, he said, look, we're going to go on some fun field trips. They're going to learn some stuff. They might not get any credits, but hey, they're going to have a good time and they're going to learn some stuff. And he said the amount of students later on in life that see them in the street and go, hey, I really enjoyed doing Year 13 Geography. It was awesome. We learned some cool stuff. I re- that field trip was amazing. You know, and they enjoy school. You know, sure, sure they might not go into university and do geography, but they enjoyed their time at school. And, it, and I just think for some of our students, who are constantly, you know, getting not achieved, who are failing, school must be a miserable place. And so trying to meet the individual needs to support them to be the best that they can be. Sounds a bit cliche, I know, but that's that's what we do. I'd probably take it further. Even I've worked across the kind of spectrum in terms of schools, like right from very uh, high needs environments to very privileged environments. And in all of those environments, the young people that walk through the door largely have quite diverse needs and diverse uh, prior experiences that lead to them being able to perform in different ways. And every time, I think the most powerful thing that we do is communicate to them what's possible. And holding hope for young people is one of the big jobs of a teacher. And one of the biggest ways to ruin that is to already consign them to an environment where they're told they're not successful that that's the message they get about themselves is very hard to work against that absolutely so i shared a story at conference actually from from my personal experience so when i taught at one school my teacher code was cab c-a-b um and uh first day of the term first day of the year actually got my year 10 form class getting out timetables and it had 10 cab social studies and this one girl was like why am i in cabbage social studies i'm really smart and i'm like well number one there's, there's no such class as cabbage social studies like that's just not a thing number two it's just my name but on the first day she was furious she was furious at school furious at me furious at everyone because she thought she might have been in the so-called cabbage class 
and the, and the interesting thing about that is that I'm I'm glad that that student had enough self esteem to reject the notion. But yeah. a lot of students in those we they were referred to informally as the cab classes, weren't yeah. they? And and um, a lot of the students in them felt that was their natural home. Like they didn't challenge the notion that they were in those groups. Yeah, and I think where that becomes extremely dangerous is that where young people are making an association with um, their culture or ethnicity and whether or not they're in those classes. In my experience, and and the evidence supports this as well, that those lower band classes have a higher number of Māori and Pacific young people in them, and those higher streamed classes have a um, disproportionate you know, comparatively disproportionate number of Pākehā and non-Māori and Pacific young people in them. So what is the damage that is done where people are making the association between looking a certain way and being a certain way and achieving at a particular level unless that's elitist? Mm. Oh, absolutely. You know? And, I, and I, I challenge any teacher who thinks streaming is the best option, if your school streams, go have a look at the lower stream class. Who's in there? You know, who, what faces do you see? Because mm. if, if you believe that's absolutely the right way, then you've you've got to challenge some of your assumptions you're making, you know, because you, you, it's not great what you're thinking. If you think that's a normal thing to have happen, is that the lower stream classes are predominantly Māori and Pacifica? Downstream from that, if uh, thinking in terms of, like, big picture concepts like the social fabric, if you've spent your entire youth being consigned to a kind of rubbish bin, cabbage group of young people in the education system, how do you think your affinity with wider society is going to be? What's your attitude towards main social institutions? I mean, in order to maintain any kind of healthy self-esteem, you actually have to reject the institution, don't you? And that's not great for our society, for people in order to survive to reject institutions like education. But it's also requiring so much of those young people that not only do they have to achieve at the same level whilst being in this different class but they have they have to be disruptive mm. they have to be oppositional and not accept yeah. but how much more work is required of those mm. young people to reject stigma you yeah. know that's that's so deeply unfair that that barrier exists for those learners and that other learners have privilege that means they don't have those barriers like how incredibly exhausting to, to constantly have to be fighting um, those perceptions. Back to the first 15 thing, though, and I don't, don't think we should ignore this it, because even the research suggests this, is that there is a halo effect attached with being placed in the top class. There's often, there's even a measurable, it might be marginal, but still measurable performance improvement or success attached to that for the students who get into those top classes. And so... If people are leaving streaming, they can't just leave streaming to go into the current situation. We have to actually adapt our practice in order to make sure that those highest achievers and the students who were previously thriving within the stream system are still thriving and are still achieving. Do you have uh, particular thoughts on that, Chris? Well, as as I was saying before, that that quality PLD is, is absolutely necessary, but 
I think we've got it in New Zealand. We've got amazing teachers who, who and at schools who have been really brave to to fight for this de-streaming, to push for de-streaming. And so, and we've we know they have successes. It's really clear. There's the New Zealand uh, Math Teacher Association work for some schools to do some some um, case studies about this, and there was great success. So we we know this can work. We've seen it work in New Zealand context. So it's not just like we've taken some idea overseas and trying to shove it into our system. Uh, and so that high quality PRD, because you're right, we just can't all of a sudden de-stream, put everyone in the same class and just think we're finished. You know, it's, it's not going to work. It's going to, no one's going to benefit from that. Uh, so it's definitely absolutely changing practice. But as I said, we've got the skills and the knowledge within New Zealand to do this. Another thing um, from my past experience while we're telling our stories is that I used to teach in a school that had 13 year nine classes that were all streamed. And I taught the bottom year nine class, as it was called. And it was all boys. Mm. So it's not just Māori and Pacifica who are necessarily disadvantaged in this system. It can also be boys against girls. Oh, hugely. I mean, if you look at uh, sort of top streams, if the schools that stream, if you look at the top streams, it's, you know, there's often lots lots of uh, uh, girls in there. There's, you know, there's certain uh, over-representation of different ethnic groups. Uh, and if you look at the bottom stream, it tends to be yeah, Māori and Pacifica boys. We have a lot of work to do, but we've got the time to be able to do mm. it. And I think it's really exciting that we have the opportunity to be able to to evolve our practice so that it's more equitable and so that we're providing access to achievement for all learners. I really like the idea of case study. I think that's mm. something that we could uh, promote a lot more of is, you know, really well supported evidence and um, narratives about people who are succeeding in non-streamed environments. And I think that will do a lot to allay people's anxieties about it as well. Yeah, and I think too, at the end of the day, it's about creating meaningful pathways for students. Now, this isn't saying everyone must go to university to become a doctor or everyone's going to become a, a plumber or a builder or whatever. It's about creating meaningful pathways for students to navigate through school. And instead of schools, the systems cutting them off at year eight, saying, no, nah, you can't do that because <laughs> you didn't do a six-month taster course, because we know that schools will um, push students into courses, you know, the old barista trainsaw course, ATV course, to get their level two credits. Now, by themselves, there's nothing inherently wrong with those courses. But if you shove them all together, it doesn't really create a meaningful pathway. And so if, if a student wants to become a barista, hey, that's fantastic. That's a great meaningful pathway for them. But yeah, it's, it's cutting kids off and it's allowing, not allowing them choice. And it's, it's, it's selling their future short. And, and as you say, that's not what if you, if, if that's not what the education system's about. The education system is opening up futures. It's opening up dreams and hopes and all that other fun stuff, you know. And and we've got the opportunity to to, to reset that. I'll um, deny anyone's assertion that I'm stating this from a position of privilege, but I also absolutely mm -hmm. adhere to the view that we design learning programs in order to, to deliver great learning experiences to young people, not to deliver uh, assessment results mm -hmm. at the end. And that if the assessment results at the end don't follow, either the learning hasn't happened or the assessment is failing. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm happy to examine both of those things, but I'm not going to sacrifice the learning in favour of a failed assessment scheme. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. But I think a lot of schools... Uh, sometimes make a shortcut between assessment results and performance and they don't necessarily evaluate the things that the assessment's not revealing about what's happening in the school. I um, I went to a conference a number of years ago in Australia actually and this was a conversation about assessment and reporting 
and the school basically found it was a it was a private boys' school in Sydney, quite an elite one, and it found teachers were assessing, so they had a grade to put on their report. You know, so they weren't assessing to to see what the learning was, to understand the knowledge. They were assessing to put a grade on the report, and the school ranked every kid one to you know the bottom, yeah. and they got rid of it. They said, no, nah, it doesn't it doesn't help. And so I sort of feel if sort of private elite boys' schools can can do this kind of thing, you know, there's nothing stopping us. But yeah, assessing assessing to put a grade on a report, not to. And I worry that's what, yeah. as, as your point, you, you, you know, we, we're driven by assessment. Given that I work at a private elite boys' school, I um, work can say that in defence of the independent sector, quite often they move quickly mm. towards these new ways of thinking. It isn't necessarily a public-private thing, is it? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, it's and, and, and it has to be, someone discussed this, it has to be all of New Zealand D-Stream. You know, like it has to be a, a, a across-the-board sort of effort. It can't be pockets anymore, which it currently is. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us this morning no um, to talk about your the experience of conference and um, what happens with this this information now with this paper um, and, and where that allows us to sort of sit as as practitioners. So it's so nice to reconnect and see your face again. Oh, it's great. Um, look forward to seeing you again at another teaching event somewhere down the line. Oh, I'm sure there'll be another one that will turn up. <laughs> You've been listening to Is This For Credits, the podcast of the New Zealand Association for the Teaching of English. Check out what else we're up to by going to our website, nzate.org.nz.